If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The next podcast is a bit different from our normal fare. What you're about to hear is a lecture from our recent virtual Medieval Life and Death event, where we invited five medieval historians to speak on various topics related to everyday experiences in the Middle Ages. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, introduces the speaker and runs a short Q&A with them afterwards. If you want, you can watch these lectures on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. In this talk, Elmer Brenner discusses medieval medicine. Welcome to the BBC History Magazine and History Extra Virtual Medieval Life and Death Day. We were due to run this event in London and York, but that was before Corona hit, so we've asked our five speakers to deliver their talks virtually instead. My name's David Musgrove, by the way. I'm content director for the magazine and the website, and I'm delighted to introduce our speaker. Dr Elmer Brenner is the Welcome Collection's medieval specialist. Her publications and research explore social and religious responses to illnesses in the Middle Ages, and she's currently investigating the intersections between faith, trust and health in medieval Europe. Today, Elmer is going to talk to us about disease and medicine in the Middle Ages. So, Elmer, the floor is yours. Hello everyone, and it's great to be able to join you virtually, if not sadly in person, at this strange and difficult time for all of us. I know that you were hoping to join us um, to think about life and death in the Middle Ages, and obviously disease and medicine are a key part of that. We tend to think of the Middle Ages as a time when health was very fragile. People were very vulnerable to a range of epidemic and chronic illnesses as well as infections resulting from things like injury or accidents, as well as childbirth. And the medical knowledge of the time was fairly powerless to deal with many of these issues. In our current global situation, grappling with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're all able to emphasise with the anxieties and fears that medieval people felt with regard to their own health and the health of their families and friends. 
But at the same time, we can be really struck by the efforts that people made to protect their health and to stay healthy in medieval Europe. People had health strategies, and these were based on very distinctive understandings of their own bodies, as well as the natural environment and the wider cosmos. Just taking a quick glance at the abundant cultural production of the Middle Ages, from illuminated manuscripts to cathedral architecture to sculpture, poetry and music, really testifies to the fact that people in this time did not just survive. In fact, they flourished and they lived their lives to the full. So I'm going to make a little bit of a survey of disease and medicine in the medieval period, thinking about things like the general understanding of health and illness, and also the importance of religion to ideas about health. I'll reflect on how medieval people responded to epidemic illness, especially the plague, and chronic illness, focusing particularly on the problem of leprosy. I'll also think about how people access medical treatment, what was available, and the kinds of medical practitioners who were there to help people at this time. So first of all, how did people understand their bodies and how did they situate their bodies in the world around them and the wider cosmos? One of the really fundamental ideas, which I know many, many people will be very familiar with, was that of the humours. This was an ancient understanding understanding of the body, associated with Hippocrates and later Galen, who was um, a physician active in Rome in um, the early centuries AD, but who wrote in Greek. This idea was that within the body, there were four fluids that circulated. These were blood, yellow bile, phlegm and black bile. As we can see from the slide, these corresponded with the four elements. Blood corresponded with the air, yellow bile with fire, black bile with the earth, and phlegm with water. The key understanding here was that to be healthy, the humours inside your body needed to be balanced. If they went out of kilter, if they got imbalanced, you would become sick. Similarly, if they became corrupted in, one, in, in some kind of way, you might face problems. So one of the most ubiquitous medical practices of the Middle Ages was bloodletting. We think of bloodletting as a fairly strange thing today, to actively take blood out of the body to keep yourself healthy. But it was understood to be a key way of keeping the humours in balance. Any corrupt or superfluous humour would be removed through the process of bloodletting. And so we can see that a practical kind of approach to health was based on a fundamental concept. Another idea was one that we can very much relate to ourselves today. This was called by medieval people the non-naturals, and it was another idea that was derived from Galen. These um, kind of factors were called non-naturals because they were variable. The naturals of the body, most obviously the humours, were constants that didn't change. But the non-naturals were aspects of the physical world and the human body that would change. They were environmental and emotional factors. 
physicians needed to take account of these factors when they treated a patient. And they became the foundations of having a healthy lifestyle and environment. So broadly speaking, there were six of these. The air, food and drink, so the things that you took into your body. Sleep and rest, a fundamental behavioural factor. Exercise, purgation and retention, and emotional well-being. And I think the key thing about these is that we can really relate to them. They make sense to us today. Um, we know that taking care of your diet, making sure that you get enough sleep, and regular exercise are all things that benefit you, as well as, of course, the quality of the air, something that we're all sadly thinking about a lot at the moment. Another really fundamental idea for medieval people was to do with astrology. Medieval people had a lot of knowledge about the movements of the planets and the signs of the zodiac, and they related these directly to the human body. These astrological ideas infiltrated into Western Europe from Arabic and Greek medical writing, which was translated into Latin in southern Italy in the 11th and 12th centuries. It was held that each of the 12 signs of the zodiac was associated with a particular part of the body. So as we can see from this zodiac man image on the slide, Pisces governed the feet, Aries governed the head, and so on. When the moon moved into a particular zodiacal sign, it was believed that blood would pool in that part of the body and would make it dangerous to practice medicine on that bodily part. Most obviously bloodletting, but also other kinds of surgical procedures. By the end of the Middle Ages, these astrological ideas were very widespread and they were often represented in handy diagrams. So we've got the zodiac man on the right of this, of this slide and on the left we have a series of solar eclipse images, which were also fundamental to thinking about astrological medicine. The image on the right, the zodiac man image, is taken from a folding almanac. These were small folding manuscripts that could be hung from the belt and this meant that they could be unfolded a bit like a modern day roadmap. This meant they were highly practical. So you could imagine a physician or a surgeon going about their daily business with this hanging from their belts that they could consult whenever they needed to, and they could thus advise their patients. So obviously astrology was everywhere in medical thinking, but not everyone was a fan. We certainly have skeptics who have left their, um, their opinions in the historical record. In the first part of the 15th century, the esteemed French physician Jacques Despard complained that, I quote, the judgments of astrology are mostly uncertain, unstable, ambiguous, and often deceptive. And he warned his patients that really they should practice bloodletting whenever they felt they needed to and not pay any attention to, the, to what was happening in the heavens at that time. So now I'd like to think a little bit about how people stayed healthy in the Middle Ages. And one of the crucial things to think about here is that in a period when there was not a great deal available in terms of medical treatments for things that were very dangerous, like infections, the most sensible thing was to protect your health and avoid becoming ill in the first place. So as I've already said, there were some key concepts here called the non-naturals, which regulated people's lifestyles. 
We have some advice that has come down to us, which really resonates with us today. I have a quote here on the slide from a physician from Valencia in Spain, who was writing to his student sons who were in Toulouse in southern France in 1315. He said to them, Beware of eating too much and too often, especially during the night. You should only sleep for the fourth part of the day, so a quarter of the day. Ideally, walk somewhere in the morning and the evening. And if you can't go outside your lodgings, which obviously also resonates with us right now, climb the stairs rapidly three or four times and have in your room a big heavy stick like a sword and wield it. This is splendid exercise to warm you up and expel the noxious vapours through the pores. Um, so obviously some really practical advice there about how to stay healthy and expel any corrupt humours from the pores of the skin. So these ideas were not just held by physicians, they were held much more broadly and there was a keenness in broader society to have knowledge about these issues. Some of this was at the elite level. So I have a slide here from a regimen of health composed in the 13th century. This is the 14th century manuscript of the text. And it was composed by a high status physician, Aldo Brandino Siena, for a member of the French royal family, Beatrix of Provence, a royal woman. But by the end of the 15th century, these texts circulated um, on all kinds of levels. And by the era of print, um, so the end of the 15th century, regimens of health were being printed on a mass scale. So many, many people wanted this advice literature. And they really wanted to regulate their own health and make sure that they stayed healthy. Now, a key reason for wanting to stay healthy was that by, by the 15th century, there were very real dangers to health. As most people will, well, everyone will know really, because it's such a famous aspect of medieval history, the Black Death struck Europe in the middle of the 14th century. This was um, a plague. Um, it actually had two different forms, um, the bubonic plague and pneumonic plague. The pneumonic form affected the lungs and the bubonic form caused nasty swellings called buboes to form on the body. The strongest explanation for the Black Death was that it was caused by corrupt air or miasma that people breathed in. This concept actually existed before the Black Death struck, but it really took hold and became very prevalent once the plague had appeared. We can see here on the slide a quote from a report that was provided by the physicians of the University of Paris in October 1348 at the request of the French king about the causes of the epidemic. The report states, Although major pestilential diseases can be caused by the corruption of water or food, we still regard illnesses proceeding from the corruption of the air as much more dangerous. This is because bad air is more noxious than food or drink, in that it can penetrate quickly to the heart and the lungs to do its damage. We believe that the present epidemic has arisen because of air corrupt in its substance. 
Now, what was interesting here was that the physicians of Paris provided an explanation, but they couldn't provide a treatment, and they acknowledged that. They acknowledged that they were powerless to suggest how to make people better or how to make the plague go away fully. So this disease that started to affect Europe in 1347, with the epidemic continuing until 1351, was terrifying. In some places, it killed up to 60% of the population in a very rapid way. And as I've just said, the physicians were powerless to treat it. Modern day scientists have identified the cause as the bacterium Yersinia pestis, carried by wild rodents. The bubonic form was transmitted through fleas, but the pneumonic form, once it had kind of taken root in humans, was transmitted from person to person through breath. On the slide, we can see a depiction of the buboes that formed on the body, which were particularly visible in the under the armpits and in the groin. Um, very interesting image here because it's a wound man image that is supposed to show really everything that might happen to the body. It's a, a kind of stock image of the later Middle Ages that was kind of um, reworked in numerous different manuscripts. And the slightly earlier ones do not have the plague buboes, but this one from um, the second half of the 15th century certainly has those buboes present because they were so recognisable by that time. So although they did not call it the Black Death, this term came in much later, contemporaries definitely recognised the different forms and symptoms of the plague. The French physician and surgeon Guy de Choliac was an eyewitness to the epidemic in Avignon in 1348, to where it had spread very rapidly from Italy. He noted that the pneumonic form was especially contagious, saying, I quote, one man would catch it from the other, not just when living nearby, but just by looking at him. Guy de Choliac himself was one of the few to recover from the bubonic form after falling into a gravely dangerous fever. Like the physicians of the University of Paris, Choliac identified um, corrupt air as an immediate cause, but other causes too, including astrological um, con conjunctions of the planets. The plague was not the only epidemic illness of the later Middle Ages. Another terrifying illness that took a slightly different manifestation was the pox, also known as the French disease, which was roughly equivalent to the modern day variant of syphilis. It was a venereal infection, as contemporaries recognised, and it had very nasty consequences. We see here um, a woodcut printed image of sufferers of the pox um, from the 1490s. They have blemishes all over their bodies and the figure in the foreground has succumbed to the illness, while the others on the right um, are facing the possibility that they may recover because they are repentant of their sins and they seem to be receiving some healing rays from the Christ child in the lap of the Virgin Mary. Another epidemic that particularly affected England and strangely not other parts of Europe was the sweating sickness, which suddenly appeared in 1485 and seemed to affect young men of high status. This was a deadly fever in which sufferers died just within a few days. Illnesses like these made people especially concerned about sudden death. 
and the issue that people might die without having had a chance to confess their sins to a priest. A very popular text at this time was the Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying Well, an advice text on how to prepare one's soul for death. In the slide, we can see a printed version of this text with vivid woodcut images, and the image that we have here shows a man on his deathbed being revisited by all of his past sins that kind of parade around him and haunt him. So how did people respond to epidemic illness? One of the key things we have to think about is that after the Black Death, there were recurrent outbreaks of bubonic plague, and so people had to learn to live with this problem. They, they sought advice in advice texts, and they also um, followed precautions about avoiding other people who were sick, and also trying to keep the air around them as pure as possible. It's very clear that some of the public health measures in European cities from the end of the Middle Ages directly resulted from the problem of plague epidemics. There's clearly increased anxiety about environmental health. There were concerns about cleanliness, um, foul smells and pollution. Certain features of life seemed very threatening, such as vagrant animals, open latrines, rotten food rubbish in the streets, and contaminated water sources. So there was a lot of emphasis on keeping water supplies, as well as the air, clean and pure. And I have on the slide an image of a late medieval fountain where people could be sure that the, the water that they took was pure and safe to use and drink. In addition, we do see quarantine measures emerging in the wake of the Black Death, especially in the Mediterranean area through travel restrictions, isolation hospitals, and other methods. So obviously, we're all definitely thinking about epidemic illness right now, but it's important to be aware of all the other health issues that affected people in medieval Europe, just as we have so many health issues that we work with today. In terms of chronic disease, people live with many issues, many of which they were not able to receive treatment for. I want to think particularly about leprosy, which, like the plague, is so synonymous with medieval Europe. We can think of leprosy as an endemic illness, something that was present in the population over a very, very long period of time, from the early Middle Ages and even earlier. But it's important to be aware that it only ever affected a very tiny proportion of the population, and it was not heavily contagious. It was a progressive and disabling illness that people lived with for many years. Physicians were not able to treat it, and so they provided palliative care um, with the dressing of wounds, the regulation of the diet, bathing, and also recommending spiritual care that cared for the souls of people who were not going to get better, but also provided them with emotional support. One of the things people think about a lot with medieval leprosy is the idea of, of people being outcasts and being excluded from society. There's quite a prominent kind of trope about the leprosy sufferer holding a clapper, which is meant to warn people that they are coming and make people move away so that they won't go anywhere near them. Much recent research has really questioned this. And I have an image on the slide of an individual with a clapper who's clearly being quite active 
Um, this is a, a manuscript in the British Library from about 1500. And this man is kind of moving around and holding the clapper. And really, we can think that he's actually trying to attract attention so that people might give him money. He's trying to say, I'm here, I'm a member of society, and I expect you to help me. Indeed, the hospitals for people with leprosy um, were a major part of the landscape and were clearly supported through considerable charitable donations. I have a slide here of one of the wealthiest hospitals, the one outside Cambridge, which had a very prominent annual fair established at Stourbridge, um, which was something that people from the whole region would flock to, suggesting that they were not that concerned about contagion and that they were keen to support a worthy cause. Um, so these hospitals were admittedly always outside the city, possibly following um, biblical recommendations, but they were never far away and they were usually on a main road that was easy to access. So with leprosy, we can think probably more about integration and connection than about exclusion. So in the next part of my talk, I want to think about the kinds of things that people did to um, bring about protection for health and healing. Um, both in terms of practices and also in terms of the people who are involved in providing treatment, the medical practitioners. So first of all, religion and magic, and how were those connected to medicine? Religious beliefs were central to ideas about disease causation and transmission and treatment. One of the reasons for this was that the church taught people that their bodily health was directly dependent on their spiritual health. So if you had um, any kind of problem with your bodily health, you needed to make sure that your soul was in good health, because otherwise you definitely wouldn't get better. So religious practices were directly connected to medical practices. Another factor was the prominence of the saints in providing healing. So we can see on the slide um, two saints standing together in conversation, St. Roche and St. Lawrence. I wanted to draw particular attention to St. Roche because he was a plague saint. We can see him exposing the plague bubo on his thigh. People would venerate this saint um, in order to receive his protection from the plague. Other saints as well as Christ and the Virgin Mary, provided vital protection for key health issues. Here on the slide, we can see um, images of drawings on a late medieval birth girdle. Now, this was a, a long parchment roll that was believed to provide protection during childbirth. And it invoked the protection of various saints, including in this case, Saints Julita and Quiricus, mother and son saints associated with protection of, of women in childbirth. Um, we can see also on the slide Christ's dripping side wound because the role also instructed people using it to venerate Christ as well as the Virgin Mary and to solicit their protection. So this kind of practice of taking something like a strip of parchment and believing that it had a potency, believing that you could wrap it around your body and it would help you, really brought religion closer to magic. And it was, it's really clear that um, in, this, in this aspect of medicine and health, religion and magic overlapped with each other. And some people found this problematic. Technically, the church did not endorse magical practices, even though it's clear that many monasteries possessed manuscripts that included magic. 
One very important example of how magic became part of medicine was the use of charms. Healing charms were remedies whose effectiveness was based on words. So the words might be written on the body, they might be recited, and they would then have the power to heal you or protect you. So this is a charm that we find in a manuscript at Wellcome Collection from the 15th century that contains various invocations that were said to protect people against pestilential illness. So this the words as well as the image itself would protect you. And this was obviously crucial when there was not a clear medical treatment that would resolve the problem of plague. And finally, in terms of magic, it's really interesting to think about how medieval people very much tried to predict the future where possible. Um, they wanted to prognosticate, which was something that physicians did, but also others did, and try and predict um, what the outcome of an illness would be, most importantly, whether a sick patient would live or die. And this is a, um, on the slide, we can see a, a pretty complex diagram with all sorts of numbers and letters on it um, that was a divinatory tool that you could use the letters of a person's name and other pe pieces of information to predict whether they would live or die. It's called a sphere of Pythagoras. And examples of this are found in quite a few manuscripts that survive today. So the final part of my talk is really thinking about what you could do in terms of getting practical help on the ground for a, a medical problem. Who were the practitioners who could help you and what kinds of treatments did they offer? It's really important to think about the Middle Ages as a period of professionalisation in numerous re um, areas such as the law, but certainly also in medicine. The emergence of the universities and the guilds meant that people were there who um, were really licensed to practice medicine and surgery. Um, they were formally educated or formally trained. However, there was a wide spectrum of practitioners, many of whom were empirical practitioners, who did not necessarily have that formal training, but had a great deal of experience and expertise. And there was a marketplace where all those people on that spectrum could expect to gain work if their treatments were seen to be successful. So firstly, the physicians. Here we have an image from a stained glass panel from Canterbury Cathedral relating to one of the miracles of Thomas Beckett, showing a physician offering a vial of medicine to a patient. He's leaning over the patient in, in the bed. This is interesting because the physician, while coming close to the, the patient, is not actually touching that patient. And physicians were quite well known for observing diagnosing and advising, but not necessarily getting hands-on. The closest they would come to bodily contact with a patient was to take the pulse. They were interested in seeing what was going on inside the patient's body, but not necessarily in close examination. In terms of the inside of the body, they were most famous for examining the urine to see what colour it was and what consistency it had, the texture of it, and even to smell it. And this was a crucial diagnostic tool, which actually is something that is very much used today. Obviously, the analysis of urine is very different today, but I think we're very familiar with the need to provide a urine sample um, as a diagnostic tool for certain illnesses. So on this slide, we have a 14th century or 15th century painted panel 
with the physician holding up the urine flask so that he can carefully examine it. Physicians would also examine blood, which could of course be obtained through bloodletting. Now the other major category of practitioners are the surgeons, also called barber surgeons, because barbary, the practice of cutting hair, overlapped with other practices of attending to the body and kind of applying a hands-on approach to it. So the key thing about barbers is that they did intervene with their hands. They intervened manually, doing things like stitching wounds, as we can see here in a 14th century manuscript on the slide. They also performed bloodletting, and sometimes they, they performed more sophisticated and major operations, such as the fistula in Aigno operation. Contemporaries recognised that an operation would be risky. They knew about infection. They didn't know how to resolve the problem, but they knew that it happened. And so there was a lot of care in, a, in establishing whether an operation really needed to take place. But we do know that surgeons did perform operations. And there's archaeological evidence for um, procedures like amputations having clearly taken place and for the patients having survived them and continued to live for a period after that happened. We can see on the right of the slide here a vein man image which shows the points of the body for bloodletting, which was crucial knowledge for a surgeon or a barber surgeon to have. And then another really important category of practitioner that maybe we don't think about so much, but who played a vital role, was the apothecary. So apothecaries had great expertise about medicinal substances. Um, from plants, animals and minerals, and how to mix these and form medicines. They sometimes had, um, were able to obtain ingredients from far-flung places across the globe um, to make exotic medicines like theriac. Apothecaries um, often had their own shops. They also had relationships with physicians and surgeons um, with whom they collaborated. They sometimes supplied um, monastic communities. We know that Westminster Abbey in London in the later Middle Ages retained the services of an apothecary. The slide shows a busy market scene in early 16th century France, where on the right we can see the, the stall of the apothecary where you could go to buy your medicines and probably get the apothecary to mix something especially for you. And interestingly, right behind in the centre of the slide, we can see the barber's stall where the barber is um, shaving and cutting hair and probably um, performing certain medical treatments as well. And finally, and this is a really important thing for us to think about, um, women were, were everywhere really in medical practice and were highly respected medical practitioners. While it was not straightforward for a woman to attend a university or become a member of a guild, women's experience was highly valued in all kinds of arenas. Um, we can think about midwives, um, also the nurses who had great expertise in hospitals, um, also, bloodletting, which we certainly know that women um, perform bloodletting um, on a regular basis and had considerable knowledge in that area. And then also certain very specialised processes. So on the slide, we have a wonderful scene of um, distillation taking place. So this is um, a, a scene with a man in the centre, but either side of him are two women who are performing roles in the, the stages of the process of distilling medicinal waters from plant extracts. 
um, using pieces of equipment that would enable distillation. Um, so this is a technological process. Um, women were playing a key role and they had knowledge that um, they passed on to others. Okay, so to sum up, there's so much that we can know about people's experiences of health in the Middle Ages and so much really that we can learn from medieval people. Clearly, disease and medicine were fundamental to people's experiences of life and death in medieval Europe. This was a time when people faced considerable health challenges, especially through recurring outbreaks of epidemic illness after the Black Death, but also through the life-threatening potential of everyday infections and really the sense that daily life was potentially dangerous and that at any moment life could become precarious. It's clear that amidst all these difficulties, the people of the Middle Ages were physically and mentally highly resilient, as well as possessing a great deal of knowledge about their own health. Furthermore, they sought knowledge and information whenever they could, particularly through texts that circulated widely, like regimens of health and plague tracts. Medieval people used natural, magical and celestial resources to protect their health. And when illness and disease afflicted them, they faced these problems with determination, pragmatism and religious faith. And when we think about the religious faith of medieval people, we think most obviously of Christianity, but it's important to remember as well that there were important Muslim and Jewish communities living in medieval Europe. So for all these communities, although much emphasis was placed on the health of the soul and the world to come and preparing for one's future salvation, in all parts of society, including most interestingly monastic communities, there was evidently a great deal of value placed on the health of the body and the here and now. Illness, as well as disability, were clearly an accepted part of life, but so too was the potential to be healthy and to live life to the full. Elma, thank you. Um, that was that was fascinating. I've got lots of questions. I hope we've got time for for just a few of them. Um, the first one, and the most topical and pertinent, is uh, is Black Death. You talked about that um, a fair bit. Um, obviously, there's lots of people making parallels to between you know the current situation and and what happened in the mid 14th century. Do you, as a, as a, an expert in this uh, in this field, find any sort of credence in those parallels? So I think. We're living in very interesting um, and difficult times. Um, I think, of course, there is a parallel in the sense of an epidemic illness um, that had the potential to be fatal and affected lots of people and also um, has significant economic ramifications. Um, I think it's, it's very helpful for us now in a sense to, although we're facing um, a very, a very, problematic and difficult illness um it's really helpful for us to be aware that it's it's not the same thing and that actually the black death had a much much higher mortality um it spread even more virulently than covid-19 is 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 has been spreading um and that it um 
caused even more dislocation um, and that there was much greater vulnerability among the population for a wide range of reasons. Um, one of which is that for quite a few people, their health was, was not so resilient to start with. Um, and so um, in, West, in the West, um, in Europe, um, we have high standards of living, um, high standards of health. Um, um, we live in a society where people expect to live long lives, which was certainly not the case in the Middle Ages. Um, so they're, they're not the same thing. For me, the thing that is, is, is important to think about, and this is where I think and I hope that medieval history can help us, is to think about, okay, so they're not the same illness, and the scale of mortality, thankfully, is not at all the same. Um, but how did people respond? And how did they live with this? Um, how did they reconcile it with their daily lives? How did they um, maintain their communities? Um, and we're able to document that in the Middle Ages, um, both in the immediate aftermath of the Black Death and also um, through the subsequent plague epidemics that affected people. And I find, I'm hoping that medieval history could be helpful to us um, from that perspective. Okay. And just specifically on the on the corrupt air point, you talked about how that was seen to be the sort of the root cause of it, um, and you and you showed that slide of the uh, 1348 um, statement from those French physicians about it. Wh- where did that actually come from? Where did that idea derive from that there could be something wrong with the air? Yeah. So it's um, it was present in these these Arabic medical writings that were much earlier um, from um, that came from from the East and were translated um, into. Latin um, in the 11th and 12th centuries through a kind of translation wave. But it really existed alongside other other explanations of disease. Um, these were texts that explored a range of possibilities. And right up until the 14th century, the idea about corrupt air didn't really gain much ground and the humoral explanation dominated. Um, and so that idea that it's it's really about what's going on inside your body, that's why you're sick, nothing to do with what's going on outside, um, apart from, you know, paying attention to um, general things that could benefit your health um, in the environment. Um, but um, the corrupter idea um, really emerged, I think, in the early 14th century um, in the Italian city-states that were heavily populated and where attention was being paid to the environment of the city and to things that were on an obvious level unpleasant. So foul smells, I think obviously human beings instinctively do not like a pile of rubbish that is emanating a nasty smell and is right in your face outside your house, you know, in the city streets. Um, And so people started to look at that and to look at, and just to think, you know, about... um, ill health and how that might be connected in some ways. And then suddenly you've got this plague epidemic that cannot be explained according to humoral models because it seems to affect anyone and everyone, regardless of the state of their humours, and a connection was made um, to the quality of the air. And the, the idea suddenly became much, much more entrenched in medical thinking. So, so some sort of implicit, intrinsic understanding that air pollution would 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 be uh, by necessity a bad thing. Did anyone ever suspect the rats and the fleas in the uh, in the Middle Ages? Not as far as I know. Um, I might be wrong, um, and I, you know, there may be um, some evidence out there that does suggest that. Um, what is interesting is that people were concerned from a very early stage about clothing. 
and the idea that clothing or um, sort of bed linen, people's clothes would become infected. And obviously you can think about fleas as things that obviously they infest human bodies, but they're also very happy um, in fabric too. So that is interesting. Um, and that, you know, the idea that I think that was primarily that concept was to do with the fibres of the cloth and the air could get into the fibres. So it comes back to corrupt air. But nonetheless, I, I've often thought that was interesting. Yeah, OK. Um, moving on a bit, you, you, you talked about bloodletting. Uh, obviously, that was a big part of, of, uh, of the medical process. It, would bloodletting have ever been of actual medical benefit, aside from the panacea, the mental... Um, aspect that uh, presumably it, uh, it brought on to people? Um, when it's not really clear that it would have had a benefit. Um, but one key thing to think about is that I think we all know today that losing a, a fairly small quantity of blood is not that harmful. So obviously we're invited by the NHS to give blood, which is an amazing thing to do. Um, and we know that we can go in, give blood and usually have a drink and go home again. Um, so it's not clear that it would have um, been harmful to anyone. But I think your point about um, the panacea is an important one um, because obviously um, obviously, we think in modern day medicine about the placebo effects um, and about really, you know, if you believe something, it may have a tangible physical benefit to you. Um, and I think um, if people believe that this was helping them, particularly actually, I think the preventive approach to it, the idea that you would regularly go and um, experience bloodletting um, and then you would go home and think, you know, I've done that. Great. I'll be OK now for a while. And let's think positive. Let me, you know, let's put some energies into things I love doing or, you know, um, being a happy person. Then I think all those things would have come together. And I think they could have had concrete physical benefits um sleep you talked about an understanding of sleep in uh, in the middle ages and, and we've uh, we've covered this in uh, in bb history magazine on history extra actually um uh is is it correct that there, this idea that there was kind of like a two stages to sleep and you slept for a bit the first sleep and then there was a you could you could you know happily wake up and then there was a second sleep or is that a bit of a trope that there's no particular evidence for um, I don't know too much about sleep. Um, I I believe that um, certainly it's clear that people the the thinking about sleep was it was a a, a lower quantity of sleep than there is today, um, and that also um, what happened during sleep was important in terms of dreaming, for instance, that you needed to pay attention to that in terms of what that said about your health. Um, certainly, we do know that in terms of the monastic routine um, in monasteries with a lot of liturgical observations, um, they required the monks and nuns to interrupt their sleep. Um, so to get up at least once in the night. And that would suggest um, at least a belief that that was not detrimental. And so that that could tie into a belief about stages of sleep, potentially. Okay. I won't. I won't grill you on a topic. Sorry, that you were, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, was, I was very. I was very into. And when we we've chatted before for for the podcast, and uh, and we talked about this a bit before about this this idea that um, uh, medieval people would have been uh, sort of sensitive to to living a, a um, living a life of precaution, not doing things that was that were going to put them in harm's way. And yet, you have uh, certain elements of the culture that are violent. The, the the martial military culture, you know, going to tournaments and things like that, which were clearly 
horribly um, risky things to do and could result in in fairly catastrophic injuries. Now, I guess the people going to those and and, uh, and getting involved were probably mostly gung ho young men who who perhaps had had a had a, um, a an attitude that uh, that was um, risker, you know, not too worried about risk. But but do you think is there something in in there that doesn't quite tally? I think so. I think that's a really interesting point that you raise because um, many things that people did were highly risky. Um, definitely things like warfare and tournaments, which were actually could be seen as a leisure activity, but were definitely dangerous. Um, also things like um, seafaring. So I'm often struck when I'm researching maybe someone who lived in the 13th century um, you know, and they were based in northern France, but they keep popping up in England because they kept crossing the channel. This is a period when ships were regularly wrecked, you know, um, and it was dangerous um, to cross the channel. I think there is overall, and it, it ties in with um, those risky aspects of life, but also with the precarity of health. Um, there is a kind of acceptance that life is precarious um, and that you have a responsibility to do everything you can to protect your bodily and your spiritual health. Um, but equally that your destiny is not fully in your control for a range of reasons. Um, and that's possibly where religious faith was helpful because really you could accept the fact that um, God and the saints had various things in store for you. Um, you could negotiate with them and you could do your very best um, to please them but that also you might have to accept things that happen to you or your family that that were difficult to deal with. Okay, so a certain fatalism presumably around. Yeah, I think the, so. The I think so, and also I think it's also interesting when thinking about chronic health conditions and how people live with those um, disability, and the fact that um, I think we tend to think that medicine can help us and it can make things better and put things right. And that I think um, there's a, a different attitude in the Middle Ages, an acceptance that these things couldn't be sorted out, but that you could live with them and you could still live a fulfilled life. Just a couple more, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you've, if you've come across anything uh, like this in your research, but um, clearly today we, we suffer a lot. We worry a lot about alcoholism and addiction. Is there any evidence for that sort of thing going on in the Middle Ages? Yes, there is actually. Um, and actually, it's an area, I think, I would say that there's a lot of potential research to be done. Um, it's usually anecdotal. Um, so it's not necessarily about treating or resolving the problem, but it's usually about but making it pretty clear to us that it exists. Um, and, and interestingly, quite often it comes from monastic communities. Um, so the places where we, we, we'd like to think that people were living a kind of exemplary form of life. Um, but that actually, um, I guess it's reported on because they were not following the correct way of life, but that clearly, so alcoholism, um, also um, things like overeating is reported on, um, you know, kind of excess of any kind, which was, was frowned on, but clearly happened. Um, also links into kind of um sort of sexual behaviour that was seen as problematic, that was seen as excessive. And that connects in with these venereal illnesses that people were so anxious about. Um, and the sense that prostitutes were responsible, but also um, the men who engaged prostitutes um, and kind of took their services as well. 
and w- w- presumably the the treatment for that or the response to that was would have been a, a religious one I, I assume that you know the church stepping in and, and trying to impose some moral values yeah i think so and also i think um this particular um non-natural that i referred to this kind of health factor that was that people had at the forefront of their minds about emotional well-being um it's really interesting because the church could really provide that so things like confession um and and also just simply membership of a religious community whether it was um a monastic one or your parish um settings where people could talk to each other and they could be open about what was happening with them i mean certainly we know today that the 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 best long-term treatment for alcohol abuse is through meetings um aa meetings that people have um where they can talk about what's going on with them and really i think community life in the middle ages was ideally set up to help people with issues like that um so it's the church but it's also the wider community that's that's excellent. That leads in very nicely to my last question, which um, actually I've talked about on some of the uh, the other talks that we've had in this uh, in this session about the sense of community and uh, and the fact that in the Middle Ages there is this idea that there was a communal spirit that developed. But I, I just wanted to pick up specifically on one thing: is when we worry about mental health today, one of the big things we're we're advised to do is to talk about it, is to find somebody to discuss things with. Was that a thing that people were? Um, uh, uh, advised to do was there any sense that you know if you've got a problem you should you should um, you, sh- you should talk about it and you would you would benefit from that yeah that's a really important thing to think about um what's interesting is that um physicians who are the people who provide the kind of the most authentic kind of advice um don't tend to talk about that issue they talk um about mental issues um often interestingly from a physiological standpoint um so they do they had theories about um what was happening inside the brain and um they might try to explain a mental health problem along those lines um but they also did not go into great detail about what you needed to do in terms of resolving um an emotional problem for instance um however other kinds of sources um provide us with kind of glimpses of information that clearly this did happen um and indeed that things like trauma were recognized um so things um a great kind of source for all kinds of aspects of medieval life are miracle accounts so accounts of um people visiting a shrine and um aiming to have a particular problem um alleviated through visiting that and the shrine and venerating the saint. And they include things like trauma. So someone who had um, seen something, um, who'd seen um, a group execution. There's a, I remember one a sort of really vivid example where a young man had, had been on a walk and suddenly saw the gallows and saw these executed bodies and was traumatised um, and visited the shrine as part of an overall process to try to deal with that, which also clearly included community help. Um, so these things are not necessarily described or articulated, but we have bits of information that show that they clearly were happening. 
Okay, it sounds like there's um, when I talked to Hannah Skoda about uh, medieval violence the other day, this this idea of of trauma and how how it can be identified in uh, in uh, medieval records uh, came up. It sounds like there's there's probably some work to be done there. Um, yeah. But Elma, Elma, um, Dr. Elma Brenner, um, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, that was a, a very interesting talk with um, clearly very topical. Um, so you're from uh, Welcome Collection. I think it lacks it lacks the definite article, doesn't it? I got it wrong to start with. It's Welcome Collection, yeah, not the Welcome <laughs> Collection. I was I got that wrong first. So Dr. Alma Brenner from Welcome Collection. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Elma Brenner talking about medieval medicine. If you'd like to watch the lecture. It's available at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. For more from this series, tune in again next Saturday when Emma Wells will be talking about medieval religion. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>